0: Hey, and welcome to Adopted Feels, a podcast about anything and everything adoption-related. This is Hannah, and today I'll be talking to a friend and fellow Korean adoptee, Caitlin Hemakey. Caitlin was born in Seoul, Korea, and raised in Michigan. She earned her MA in English from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. A two-time Fulbright Grant recipient, she devotes much of her writing, research, and activism to social justice in the transnational transracial adoption community she currently lives in seoul
1: hi caitlin hi Anna.
0: (laughs) thanks for talking to me on the show yeah thanks for having me so when did you come to korea for the first time and what motivated you to
1: move here Right, so it's sort of a weird long story, but um, I first came to Korea in 2012. It was right after I graduated from college, and um, I went to Korea through the Fulbright program, which is um, like a State Department program that sends recent college gradu- graduates um, to various countries abroad to either teach English or to do research so that was the first time I had the chance to do anything related to Korea or to go to Korea So I just picked Korea for my application country and I got in so um had you been thinking about Korea
0: a lot like before that point
1: um not much I would say. Um I grew up in a really small town. I went to college at a really small college that was close to my hometown. Um and I had always kind of I guess just because I liked to learn languages, um I majored in Spanish and minored in French. I had always thought to myself that oh, when I go to college, if there are Korean classes, I would take them. Um but my college definitely definitely did not have Korean classes Um, so yeah that that wasn't available to me but um, yeah so I I guess it was marginally on my mind but um, just given the lack of opportunity in Milo in in my area um, I wasn't I guess I wasn't motivated enough at the time to seek it out more proactively so um, yeah cool
0: and so then you moved to Iksan yes. Right, in
1: Cholubukto. Yes, so the Fulbright program, um, at the time there were, I want to say 70 or 80 people in the program total, and mm-hmm. everybody gets sent all over the country um, to various places and cities, um, mostly outside of, Sol- of Seoul. Um, so I was. Sent to Iksan in Cholabukdo. Um It's a suburban city of about 250,000 people near Chanju. Mm-hmm. It's like 20, 30 minutes away from the more major city of Jeonju. Um And I taught in an all girls high school. What was Iksan like? I actually loved it, honestly. Oh, really? I mean, I guess it's because, it's probably because it, you know, Iksan. It's not a big city by any stretch of the imagination, but it's still bigger than any city I had lived in until that point. Um, I loved it because it was right on the KTX line, so I could go anywhere I wanted to relatively quickly, mm. cheaply, and easily. It was very close to Chunju, so if I wanted to go somewhere slightly larger, I could do so in about 20 minutes. Yeah. Um, Cholabukdo. I mean, the Chola region is known for good food, so, like, the food <laughs> was good, um, and Iksan was still, you know, it was small, but it was big enough to have, like, a movie theater and a large, like, a home plus, you know, like, a large, like, a Lotte mart, um, larger type of store, um, a little downtown and a little, like, university area, um, so yeah, I honestly loved living there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of curious, did you
0: love Korean food from the beginning? Was that, like, really your first...
1: I'll say yes with an asterisk. Um, it was It was <laughs> my first time... Well, let me think about that. I think maybe I had Korean food once or twice, but in Europe, I mean, if memory oh, okay. serves. <laughs> I, I, yeah, um, I don't think it was, like, that good. Um, I mean, I thought it was good when I ate it, but in hindsight, I don't think it was really, like, good Korean food. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> so basically, it was my first time eating Korean food. Um... Yes, with an asterisk, because the first six weeks of that program was spent in orientation in the middle of nowhere at this university with um, like the world's worst cafeteria food. So, oh, okay. <laughs> um, so you know the, that food was not good at all. But um, occasionally we would go into town and and eat eat out, and that was amazing. Um, so yeah, and then after after orientation. Um, we were placed in homestay families, and my I had two different homestay families, but the f- first one in particular, uh, my host mom was an amazing cook, like, incredible. Mm. Um, not at all humble about it either. Like, every time I, c- <laughs> I complimented her about it, she's like, yeah, I know. Like, Do you think that's, um, like, a chola thing? <laughs> maybe, maybe in part. Um, yeah, I, I think she she even, like, you know, sold her banjeon oh, for wow. a while. You know, like, um... So, yeah, she was an incredible cook. <laughs> okay, so you spent two years
0: teaching at Nixon mm-hmm. and then you returned to the U.S. for grad school,
1: which was always your plan, right? Um, I don't know about always my <laughs> plan, but I guess before I before I did the Fulbright, um, my professors in, in college had been encouraging me to think about grad school, and I wasn't sure if I was ready for it quite yet. Um and also as an english major i knew if i went to grad school it would probably be to become a professor so you know this fulbright thing was a kind of kind of a way for me to get my feet wet in terms of teaching obviously it's not the same as teaching in a university but um just to try it out um and think a little more about the grad school stuff so yeah i mean it was it was on my mind and it was a natural way to go back to the states i would say but and How was that transition
0: like back to the U.S. after living in Korea like did you miss Korea?
1: Um, I don't know. Was it like a reverse culture shock? (laughs) Totally. It totally was. (laughs) Um, so I went to grad school in Lincoln, Nebraska at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Lincoln, Lincoln, I mean as a city, it's about the same size as Iksan. um, Hmm. And well, maybe bigger. I can't remember I guess, but (laughs) um, you know, it's it's a smallish but still city, city, and I naively thought that, uh, you know, even though it was returning to life in the Midwest, um, I thought I could handle it because I grew up in the Midwest and I grew up in a place that was surely less diverse and much smaller than lincoln Mm, right so i thought i would be fine but honestly it was horrible Um, i mean uh, and even even at that time i probably wouldn't have admitted to you that it was horrible but in hindsight um i can see just how unhappy i was and how hard it was to adjust to being surrounded by white people yeah and um you know lincoln is you know lincoln does have some diversity but not a huge Korean population. There weren't a lot of Korean like students in the school. Um, the biggest international student population was Chinese. So um, I would find myself like when I was walking on campus, I would see like a giant group of Asian students, and I would kind of like turn my ear and listen if maybe they'd be speaking Korean, but they never were. So yeah, I really missed Korea, and it was really hard to adjust back.
0: Did you um, I don't know try to stay connected with Korea and in certain ways, like by watching K dramas.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I follow like K pop and K dramas much more in America than when I am in Korea, which seems silly. But um, no, I understand that. Yeah, yeah, and so yeah, I would. I watch dramas. I followed my favorite K pop groups. Um, I was writing for Soompi, which is like a K pop, like a pop culture website. Um, that's when I started my Zoopy gig, writing, so...
0: That's amazing, (laughs) by the
1: way. Then I I had to watch dramas for work, like... Oh, wow! (laughs) That's that's the best job! (laughs) (laughs) That was my excuse, at least, right? Um and I mean actually astonishingly Lincoln did have some little Asian supermarkets so every now and then I would cook myself like a giant pot of kimchi jjigae and oh, nice. I would eat out of that yeah. pot for like three days in a row or something but <laughs> <laughs> um yeah as a little aside like what are your let's say I don't know top three f- favorite dramas <gasps> my top three favorite dramas I mean okay so to be fair I haven't watched that many dramas but do I have to rank them from one to three or is it just top three in general just top three (laughs) top three in general okay (laughs) that's easier. um let's see I have to say Descendants of the Sun um wow top three I mean it's it's sort of cliche because it was so popular (laughs) and like you know and yeah, I mean, we've talked about this, but in my mind, I can admit that it's kind of trash. But it was—I just, I had, I just truly enjoyed watching that drama. Like, and en, like, enjoy is the best word I have for it. Like, it was.
0: Was it paced quite well, like across like the 16 or 18 episodes as well? Because I find some of them, you mm. know, like right out of steam or kind of mm. get
1: a little slow in the middle. Or I think it was paced pretty. I mean maybe too much stuff happened, right? So, that, <laughs> <laughs> so, when you look at it in the big picture, it's like, oh, this doesn't all really go together, but it keeps you entertained from <laughs> episode to episode. Uh, okay, so Descendants of the Sun is, Descendants of the Sun is one. Yeah. Um, W was one of my favorites. Oh. W is really great. Um, it's about, um, like, there's the real world and then there's, like, this, uh, webtoon world and it's like, People go back and forth between the two worlds. And I mean, as a nerdy English major, that one was really interesting in terms of how it plays with like narrative and how like interaction between, you know, like the artist, the webtoon artist, and the character and stuff like that. Um, So I loved that one. And a third one, maybe Reply 1997. Ah, Reply 97. Yeah, yes. That was good. Yes. Oh, you've seen it. Yeah, I've seen that one. Yeah. I haven't seen W. Ward since. It was okay. Done. Yeah. The Reply series, I mean, I've only watched 97 and the first bit of 88. Um, but that whole series is just so charming and so, like, um, I mean, I think for Koreans, it's very nostalgic, right? But then mm. for um, someone who didn't grow up in Korea, it's like a way to learn about what Korea was like in yeah. that time period. So, um... do you think it was also like that? k-pop fandom that appeals to <laughs> i mean in part i that you know as a as a follower of k-pop i enjoyed watching that <laughs> that rivalry um but i think the regional aspect is also just really cute like you know it rotates between different yeah parts yeah. of korea so they have the satori and um that's like fun.
0: Mm. i actually think that the two leads in reply 97 also have quite good chemistry yes that's very true as well <laughs> <laughs> okay, so can you tell us a bit about your uh, research for grad school?
1: Ah, sure. So um, my, I was, my degree is in English, English literature, I guess, technically. Um, so my thesis, I decided to write about um, Korean adopting memoirs. So at the time, you know, there weren't so many memoirs published, um, but I focused on Jane Jung two books, So Fugitive Visions and um, The Language of Blood Mm. and The Ghost of Sangju by Su Jung Jo. So those are my three books. Um, And specifically, I was looking at how those authors talked about birth family search and trauma. Um, Yeah, and basically how they deal with their trauma of adoption, of loss, um, and also of trying to uh, kind of Carve a place for themselves back in Korea
0: Right Mm -hmm. So before your research Had you, I mean, were you kind of well versed in adoption stuff? Not at all (laughs) Not even a little bit Um, Had you read other adoptee memoirs? No (laughs) No So you completely Um, like jumped in the deep end with three I think three quite intense yeah. Deeply
1: emotional memoirs. Yes, yes. And you know, I, I didn't know what I was getting myself into when I applied to grad school and, you know, had to pick had to at least pretend like I knew I was what I was talking about when I applied and said, oh, I want to study this. Um and so I think I had read can't remember if it was Language of Blood or Fugitive Visions. I think I had read just one of Jane's books. And so I was like, oh, I'll study Korean and memoirs. There's not so many of them. It's kind of niche. Like, probably nobody else is looking at that. So, um, yeah, I kind of naively flung myself into (laughs) this, yeah, yeah, that deep end of
0: adoption stuff. Um, By the way, did you, um, what do you think of Jane's
1: writing? Personally, I, I loved her books. Yeah, so did I. I mean, I think probably to be honest, the first time I read... Her work, and uh, I, I should remember which one it was, but I can't recall which one I read first. Um, Because I think I did read it while I was in Korea. Mm -hmm. Um, And since I had so little knowledge of the history of of adoption, Mm -hmm. the politics behind adoption, you know, this idea of adoption as like a loss and as a traumatic experience, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Since it was kind of my first exposure to that, I think probably the first time I read it, I was kind of taken aback. Like, yeah. oh, like I hadn't thought about it this way before. Um, it's confronting, right? Yeah, totally. And maybe I even used that horrible word, like, seems kind of angry, like to myself, like, you know, mm. angry or bitter or. Um,
0: it's It's true though. I mean, I think she is kind of unashamedly angry.
1: <laughs> right. And I mean, that's. I mean, these days, like me too, like if if people use that word of angry adoptee, yeah. I mean, obviously, I it's like a stupid label. But also, there are a lot of can I swear fucking reasons to be angry, like yeah. <laughs> you know. No, like, I'm totally on the same page. Um, like there's yeah, why shouldn't we be angry? So yeah, I have mixed feelings about that label, but um, yeah. yeah,
0: and more broadly as well. Like I don't really know why generally in society we have such a problem with anger when yeah particularly like when it's justified it's just I think it's just an emotion like like any other anyway I'm not gonna get on that (laughs) yeah (laughs) um so so you jump in the deep end with this research Mm -hmm. and these memoirs and you're like learning a lot of stuff about adoption really quickly right and I've heard from a lot of other um Adoptees who research adoption-related topics. That I guess it's just like quite emotionally draining and taxing. And yes, totally.
1: Um, so at UNL, um, there obviously wasn't anybody studying specifically this. Um, I did have there was an adoptee. There is an adoptee professor there, um, John Rabel. He's a, a biracial, biracial, domestic American adoptee. Um, so he was on my thesis committee. Um, he gave me a lot of good recommendations for like films to watch. Um, and I had a very supportive advisor who knew nothing about Korea or adoption, but was very Mm. willing to kind of take that plunge with me. So there was a lot of the two of us, you know, sitting in an otherwise empty classroom watching, uh, very heavy (laughs) documentaries about (laughs) adoption. And, you know, sometimes she would just be like crying and I would just kind of be sitting there like, whoa, you know,
0: um, (laughs) sounds really intense.
1: Yeah. Uh, And also, I mean, and again, I didn't know that I would have this difficulty, but um, I think particularly with writing my thesis, Mm. um, I mean, writing a thesis is a big pressure anyways, but, um, you know, I mean, throughout my academic life, I've never had too much trouble writing papers. Um, I would usually procrastinate a lot, like, you know, um, but with the thesis, you know, I was Trying so hard to write it for months, it feels like, and yeah. I just couldn't. Um, you know, I would just sit there and stare at the screen for hours and not be able to produce anything. Or I would, you know, I would sit there going through my books and pulling quotes to use or trying to formulate words around a certain idea, and I just couldn't. Um, I just had to walk away from it for, you know, a few hours and not think about it because it was really hard. Yeah.
0: Do you think it's because you know, say you read things that articulate things perhaps that you've always felt but have never articulated yourself or just that Mm. you I mean the research just resonates in in
1: such a personal way Yeah, especially because it was the first time I was thinking about adoption and everything that comes with it in a more critical way Um, Mm. so I had to confront not only like the reality of all of those difficulties, but also apply it to my own life, right? Like, okay, I, you know, this is what adoption, this is the history of adoption in general, this is the politics of adoption in general, and now where does my life fit into that? Or yeah. um, reading or watching kind of critical material about adoptive families and thinking, oh, like, is that like, is that what my adoptive family is like? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was both a, both in kind of academic or, mental confrontation but also a personal one
0: yeah yeah so by by the way i think that would be helpful for maybe other adoptees who might listen if if anyone listens to our podcast (laughs) they will they will (laughs) um yeah who are also like say struggling with like doing adoption related research
1: yeah i mean that's the biggest advice i would give to like an adoptee who's just getting who's who's like getting into this field ah. is to just take care of yourself because um, it's really hard and maybe you don't want to admit to yourself that it's hard because um you know you're obviously you're passionate about doing something for the community or yeah um you know something like that but um sometimes you just gotta take a break like yeah it's it's self-care is so important when it's this personal yeah. um so you yeah. know
0: So during your grad school time, um, one of your professors encouraged you to submit um, a piece of your own writing, Indeed. Um, kind of based, I guess, on writing that you were doing for your thesis. Mm-hmm. Um, so you submitted a piece to Brevity magazine for a special issue on race and racialization and it was published and later selected um, for a short
1: form creative writing anthology. Also, yeah, and that totally just blows my mind. Um, <laughs> <it> was, <laughs> uh, number one because this so this special issue of brevity brevity it's a it's a what do they call themselves like a concise a journal of concise literary nonfiction. Um, so they're known for their brevity, obviously. Um, but in particular, this special issue, it was. Um, like, it was headed up by Roxanne Gay, who is. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. you know, who is Roxanne Gay. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, that was. In, so, I, yeah, I just couldn't believe it when it got published there. Um, but then also when it got picked up for this anthology. Um, I mean, it makes sense that the editors of this anthology were looking at Brevity as a source for stuff for right. the anthology. But um, still, uh, they, yeah, it was crazy to me. <laughs> I'm not surprised
0: <laughs> Okay, so now um, you're going to read
1: your piece for us. Ha <laughs> ha! Yes. All right, uh, so this is my piece titled What You Are. Um, oh, and I guess I should say, just for reference, um, I wrote it in this weird listy numbered format. Um, Which is very cool, by the way. <laughs> it's... Um, yeah. um, but reading it out loud i wouldn't read the numbers okay i think so just yeah. cool fyi all right what you are i found my korean name in the junk drawer it was printed in old typewriter font on a tiny pink bracelet the kind that babies wear after they are born at the hospital but my parents did not take me home from a hospital they took me home from an airport after a michigan court told them that they could things you cannot find in a junk drawer a whole culture an entire language, a face that looks like yours. Anytime I refused to finish my food, my dad would say, if you were still in Korea, all you would have to eat is a little bowl of white rice like this. He would curl his work-worn hand into a tiny ball, and I, horrified, would struggle to clear the tater-tot casserole from my plate. For the local community production of The King and I, All of the girls in the ensemble, most of them the fair daughters of the good Dutch farmers who inhabit West Michigan, had to dye their blonde hair black. It turned out grayish-green. Use black eyeliner to draw thick, slanted cat eyes around their blue eyes and paint their white faces a brackish orange. I asked the director if I had to do that. Well, no, you already have authentic beauty, he stammered. That year, I was voted onto the senior prom court. The prom theme was escape to the Orient. When I moved to Korea, taxi drivers and store clerks and ajumas asking for directions did not understand why I could not muster any responses to the questions they fired off in rapid, lilting Korean. Aren't you Korean? They barked, scowling at my Korean face. One of the first things my ex-boyfriend told his siblings about me. She's Korean, but adopted, so basically white. Things I learned in Korea, how to pat sunscreen and foundation into my skin to keep it as pale as possible, how to use chopsticks to wrap a crisp, fragile sheet of dried seaweed around a clump of white rice without breaking it, how to bow to the appropriate degree, how to say please and thank you in an accent passable enough that cashiers and bus drivers didn't notice that I wasn't actually fluent in Korean. You are so Korean, my American friend said. Things I could not learn in Korea. How to convince my high school students beyond doubt that they were beautiful, even without double eyelids or sharp jawlines or legs as thin as toothpicks. How to drink clear, biting soju without feeling sick. How to explain, with perfect Korean grammar and vocabulary, that I was adopted, that I did not know my Korean family, that I had not searched for them yet. Strangers still asked, aren't you Korean? When I went home for Thanksgiving, my relatives argued about politics. "'Isn't it so scary that Michigan has one of the largest Muslim populations in America?' they said. "'Isn't it such a good idea to build a wall to keep ourselves safe? "'Isn't it fortunate that we live in a town like ours, with good values and at least one church in every neighborhood, "'and not so many of those immigrants?' "'You gotta remember who you are and where you come from,' my dad told me sternly as Fox News played in the background." My Korean coworker offered to contact the missing person department at the police station to help me find my birth family. Who is the missing person? Me or them?
0: Thank you. <laughs> After your grad school, mm-hmm. um, you moved back to Korea. Yes. I'm just. I was wondering, is that? Did you feel kind of unfinished? There was just, like, more you wanted to experience here.
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, I don't know if I could really even articulate, articulate like, why Mm. or what I thought I had was missing or... Mm. um, But, yeah, I mean, even when I was in grad school, I was looking for ways to go back whenever I could. So, you know, like, I I visited, (laughs) you know, over a winter break um, to go see my students graduate and... um, I did the CLS, the Critical Language Scholarship Program, one summer to go study Korean in Gwangju. Um, so, you know, I was always looking for ways to go back. Yeah, um, so. I know the, the feeling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, and what was it like moving back here for the second time?
1: Um, quite different um, for a lot of reasons. Number one, um, although it was, again, with Fulbright, um, this time it was for a research project. Um, so... The, the teaching Fulbrights, they usually bring you, at least for the Korea program, um, they bring everybody over at the same time. You're stuck together for six weeks for orientation, so you're kind of forced to become best friends. and um, you know um, Whereas for the research grantees, they all come over at different times. Um, they're not necessarily even living in the same place. Um, so... Yeah, much different in terms of, like, built-in support network. Um, The purpose was obviously obviously different, teaching versus research. I was living in Seoul instead of living in Iksan. Yeah, that's a big change. Yep, yeah, yeah, (laughs) totally. Um, And, you know, for the research grant, I basically had free reign over my time as long as I produced something. (laughs) So, um, yeah, having the freedom to make my own schedule and do whatever I wanted to do in terms of research was... Very different did you um did you really like Seoul from the beginning from yeah the I did I did um, I mean during my teaching grant I did let's see yes both years I would I spent like a month of my winter vacation subletting in Seoul all right so I had had a taste of living in Seoul um, and had become more familiar with it um, it's a great city. It's yeah. a great place to live. <laughs> public transportation is amazing. You can get anywhere you want to go. There's so much to see and do and eat. Yeah. Um, so yeah.
0: <laughs> For your second Fulbright, you did an oral history project
1: mm-hmm.
0: on birth family search and reunion. Yes. And so you interviewed um, thirty Korean adoptees. Yep. Um, in that ten-month period. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about I don't know what that was like, what you learned, how it might have impacted your perceptions on adoption?
1: Yeah. So for um, that project, um, I was interviewing people all across the spectrum in terms of search. So um, from people who had not searched, who like had had you know consciously chosen not to search, to people who were currently searching, or people who had searched but reached a dead end for some reason so they weren't currently searching um, to people who had reunited so it was yeah all across the spectrum i feel like the main thing that i learned was that uh everything was as shady and horrible as i had read that it was Uh (laughs) um just the range of things that i heard from adoptees in terms of Particularly, particularly in terms of how like the agencies or their social workers treated them, right? Um, but also in terms of how you know their adoptive families or people in their in their networks treated them when they would talk about search or adoption. Um, like, their responses. Yeah, yeah. So, adoptive families who weren't really supportive of them searching mm. or um, the way their friends or colleagues even would say, like, oh, well, like, why do you want to do that? Like, aren't, aren't you happy? Like, like you know, <laughs> yeah. um, you seem like you're happy with your life, so why do you How need do to... even answer that? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, just the, it was just the confirmation, mm. I guess, that um, that kind of language is used in... And I really hate that assumption that because
0: you're interested in searching, that means that, um, you have issues yeah.
1: or, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's um, just another unhelpful label, ultimately. Totally. Um, but also, you know, it was also appalling to hear just what agencies were doing in terms, both in terms of how they treated adoptees and how they treated birth families too. Um, mm. you know, someone told me the story of their birth family was lied to when they, I mean, her birth family specifically reached out wanting to find her, and they said, yeah. "Oh, she she went to Europe when she went to America," you know, um, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, or people getting turned away and saying, "No, there was a fire that burned all the records," or you know, that kind of that kind of stuff. That's probably not true. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. So
0: that must have been um, another kind of confronting and <laughs> difficult period of research.
1: Yeah. It, I guess for like for me personally, it was less. Confronting, and that I knew that that was—I had read and watched enough that I knew that that happened. Um, But particularly because, like, my one of my goals in doing that project and in doing like an oral history project specifically was to like record and amplify adoptee voices, hearing hearing each personal story and uh, like everything that had happened. It was really it was like a really heavy weight at times, um, just in terms of, yeah, knowing that this was what, what was happening to individual people. And then there's 200,000 of us like, yeah. Um, yeah. And so I guess based
0: on, well, motivated by, um, those interviews, you also wrote a piece like kind of like a journalism, um, piece for Mm -hmm. Korea expose on, the difficulties that adoptees face doing birth family search. Yeah. Right. Yes. Um, <laughs> can you just like tell us a little bit about that? So you interviewed, you tried to speak to someone like a social
1: worker from one of the agencies. Ah, uh, yes. Okay. So for a career expose, there were a couple of pieces. Um, one was more, I guess about like how reunion is not, a magical hollywood happy ending that you know stuff happens after that initial yeah. reunion um one was about like a portrait piece about adoptees living in korea and the third one was about like specifically agency problems in birth search or birth family search um so yeah <laughs> i contacted holt and eastern looking for interviews holt never responded or maybe they i guess i can't remember but um at some point, the emails hit a dead end, and they stopped responding. Right. Um, for Eastern, I actually did go there and speak with a social worker, who um, it, it it felt a little dirty for me. But i i in order to get her to talk, I felt like I needed to kind of play like the nice adoptee, quote unquote. Right? Uh, yeah. So I mean, and she, you know, she was like an older, like a middle-aged um, lady who very quickly ate that up and was like, oh, look at you pretty little adoptee who came back to Korea and, oh, you speak Korean and, oh, so nice. Like, you know. (laughs) (laughs) um, Whereas secretly, I was like, ha, 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 you know. um, (laughs) I Like, she brought me into the records room where they have just, like, filing cabinets upon filing cabinets full of records and she, you know, it's, like, behind this locked steel door with a keypad and she brought me in there and just, like, pulled one open and was like, oh, yeah, like, Here's where all our files are. It goes all the way back to the beginning of Eastern. Um wow. and I I've truly never had this like kind of crazy thought in my head of like what if I just grabbed one and ran? Like yeah. what if I just pulled a stack of those files out and ran out the door? Like I was truly tempted to do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um and yeah, I don't know. It just yeah, that just triggered something kind of crazy in me. But um yeah, it you know, talking talking to her she was very much like, oh, you know, adoptees. They come in here and they just don't understand Korean culture, so they get mad at us when, when they, when we tell them we don't have any information, but you know, there's nothing we can do, and they just, they just don't understand that it's hard for Korean families, and you know, right. and that was her overall kind of tone. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. I think. Unfortunately, there it's still a really difficult
1: and unpredictable process for adoptees, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. It's and it, that's kind of messed up, right? That your birth family search could depend totally on luck. It's yeah. it's not, and not even luck in terms of like I don't know. A, there's already the problem of like, are your records accurate or do they exist? Mm. But then on top of that, it's the luck of do you have a social worker who's willing to show them to you that day, like? Yeah, um, it's pretty yeah, up, right? It's like, oh, you
0: know, are you going to walk in there and look like um, a nice, good,
1: pitiable adoptee? You know, <laughs> yeah, where they have some have sympathy for you yeah. and decide to show you something, or are they just going to slam the door in your face? Yeah. So at the beginning of your second
0: Fulbright, when you return to Korea. Um, you also did your own birth family search reunion. Yep. And you also wrote a piece about that, which was recently published in an, onth- in an anthology called <laughs> <laughs> The Motherland, um, which is a collection of short pieces written by Korean adoptees and Korean single mothers, mm-hmm. um, edited by uh, Laura Varks. Mm-hmm. And... We're going to hear you read this piece, too. Um, <laughs> um, yes, because it really tells your search reunion story rather than me asking you
1: a set of True. banal questions. <laughs> okay. okay. Alright, so yes, this is um, called How It Feels To Be Lucky. Um, it's written in a similar format to the last one, but um, I won't include the numbers here. Um, yeah, How It Feels To Be Lucky. A thing I wrote when I was young. Thinking about the person you could have been is not so bad. It's like creating a character in a story, except that character is you. Or at least who you might have been. And that could have been anything at all. And another. It is hard for me to imagine what my life would be like if I were still in Korea. I know nothing about the place. I wish I could feel like there is still a piece of me there. Instead, it is almost as if the first few weeks of my life didn't happen. A thing that is written in my adoption file. Two days after the baby was born, the birth mother said that she was unmarried and wanted her baby to be adopted in a good home because she could not raise the baby as a college student. She was found disappeared somewhere the following day, and hospital waited for her to come back taking care of the baby to no avail. And another. Adoption would be the best way for the babies and the birth mother's stable future. Therefore, I recommend it adoption in an American family. The story in the file turned out to be false. One of the first things my Korean mother said to me, Wow, you look like your father. Your smile is just like his. One of the first things my Korean father said to me, Your face is just like mine, except for your eyes. You have your mother's eyes. I asked my Korean mother if I could call her Oma. Of course, she said. It is your right. My Korean father told me he had two sons. Do you have any daughters? I asked. He looked me in the eye and smiled. My daughter is right here, he said. Once, I showed my Korean mother a photo album containing pictures from my childhood. She pored over it for a long time. The coffee she'd ordered went cold. And to think, this is such a small portion of your life, she marveled. I offered to copy the pictures for her, to let her take them home. Oh, no, she said, slowly, her eyes never leaving the album pages. For me to take them, it wouldn't be right. Once, my Korean father called me late at night, after he had had too much to drink. You hate me, right? he said. It didn't matter how many times I told him that I could never hate him, that I love him, that he has done nothing wrong. I am a terrible person, a terrible father, because I didn't take care of you for 26 years, he said. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. When I tell people that I have met my Korean family, they almost always ask, how does it feel? How does it feel to meet your parents for the first time when you are 26 years old? How does it feel to worry about taking a DNA test to ensure that they are indeed your parents? How does it feel to learn that they had no idea you were alive, that they had been told you died after birth, that they had planned to stay together, to raise you, that they would, that they would have never sent you away for adoption and had no idea that you had been? How does it feel to learn that sending you for adoption was not your parents' choice, but their parents'. That your grandparents never wanted your parents to be together, and certainly did not want them to raise a child together out of wedlock. That the cruelest of lies, she didn't make it, there was nothing we could do, became perfectly plausible because you were born so early, so small. How does it feel to always meet your parents one at a time, always separately, because they are not married, we're never married, we're too devastated by your apparent death to stay together? How does it feel to know that you will probably never meet any of your four younger siblings? That you will probably never spend a Korean holiday with any of your Korean family because no one but your parents know that you exist. When I tell people that I have met my Korean family, they almost always say, You are so lucky that you found your birth family. This is true. Over 200,000 people were adopted from Korea, and so very few of us are able to find our Korean families. If only finding our families was not a matter of luck. If only they had never been lost in the first place. Thank you for reading that piece.
0: It's super powerful. I love both of your pieces. (laughs) Thanks so much. Um, So I guess from the piece, um, I get the impression that you have a fairly strong connection with both of your birth parents um
1: individually is that the case or um i guess define strong connection i don't know um when i when i first met them um i feel like i was able to meet them more often um particularly my korean mom um At that time, she was living in Seoul, not that far away from where I lived. She was a, like, a part-time art professor, um, Mm. like a... I don't know if you would say it's adjunct or whatever, but she taught part-time, basically, at a university. Um, So she had a fair amount of free time. Um, So, yeah, I saw her really often in the beginning, like, once a month or maybe even, like, sometimes once a week. Mm. Um, But... um, Recently, she moved to gyeonggi do so it's further away. So since then, I haven't seen her as much. Maybe still around, like I don't know, once, maybe two months-ish. Um, whereas my birth father, he um, he works in the government and is extremely busy <laughs> and uh, has no time. So <laughs> I don't see him that often. Um, I saw him, I you know, I think I did see him more often in the beginning, but uh, recently it's you know maybe a couple times a year. Because um, yeah, he's just so busy um and even when we meet he's like he gets like five phone calls um but <laughs> um yeah I mean I think but I do I guess I would say that you know when I met them I felt like we got along well I felt like you know I could see the ways that we were similar um they're they're people that I just like like anyway in terms of yeah, you know that's nice. aside from them being related to me um <laughs> um so yeah I mean I, I enjoy spending time with them and um, this is a really
0: cliched question, but okay.
1: <laughs> do you see? So you see similarities physically and yes yeah. yeah. I mean, they're they're totally right in that. Um, I mostly look like my dad, but then like my eyes or like you know that area around my eyes is more like my mom. Um, personality-wise, I think I'm more like my mom. We like similar types of things, um, and then maybe kind of intellectually, I guess I'm like my dad. Um, my my like my korean mom likes to joke like oh you're good at studying because you're like your dad you know whatever <laughs> um, but uh yeah
0: just wondering like could you see the physical resemblance between you and your parents
1: immediately Hmm. i think when i first met my because i met my korean mom first and i just remember i remember like the moment she walked in the room you know like she, I just wanted to, like, keep looking at her. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, she, she, like, ran up and hugged me, and I couldn't really even get a look at her face for <laughs> a, f- a few minutes. Um, but I remember this feeling of, like, oh, I kept trying to look at her face, but she was kind of avoiding eye contact with me. Like, um, I think it was hard for me to see that first meeting, like, in person. But, you know, we, like, took a couple of pictures and... When I would look at the pictures later, I'd be like, oh, yeah. yeah, you know. Oh, yeah, we look alike. Or I would show the pictures to some, like, friends. They'd so be like, oh, like, you know, that's totally your mom. Like, you know. Yeah. Um, but do people see what they want to see? I don't know. Um, but then also, on the other hand, she sent me, like, her baby picture. And, like, her baby picture and my baby picture look very, look very oh, wow. similar. Yeah. Yeah. But then with my dad, like... I remember, you know, I walked into that room, and we just, like, stared at each other, like, whoa. Because <laughs> um, our our facial expressions are very similar. Wow. Um, our, like, our, like, bottom teeth are crooked in the same way. You know, um, and when we were, like, having dinner, and every now and then, we would just stare at each other and then bust out laughing because we had the same... Expressions. Um, wow, you
0: could recognize your own expressions.
1: Yeah, yeah, him. yeah. <laughs> it, it was it was really weird. It was it, it, that's that's another one of those things that I feel like you can't describe to somebody yeah. because most people don't have to think about like meeting someone they're similar to or related to for the yeah. first time when you're like an adult. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was one of those kind of weird, freaky. Whoa, we really look alike.
0: That must have been so crazy for them to discover that
1: their daughter had been alive this whole time yeah yeah and And she was sent away yeah when i first met my korean mom her her unni her older sister came with her and she was kind of a funny like blunt kind of person and she was like your mom when she got that phone call she cried and cried and cried i'm like well yeah like who wouldn't right um So I'm sure... I still can't fathom what kind of shock it must have been to them. Yeah. Um, And how even, like, every time we hang out, that they probably have to think about that. Um, And it sounds like, um,
0: from your piece, that even though they thought... You know, they didn't even know that you were... You had lived. Right. They still feel a significant guilt that you were adopted.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, You know, my dad, he, when I first met him, you know, and I was telling him, like, oh, I'm doing this research. And sometimes I would try to tell him about what I was up to. And sometimes he would say things like, don't you think it's time you, like, move on to something else? Or, like, oh, are your only friends adoptees? Like, you know, like, he was kind of worried that adoption was my life. Um, But, and so that kind of made me feel bad. Like, oh, but no, like, that's not it's not all my life is but i'm just telling you what i'm up to but you know yeah. he'd be like don't you think you should do something else or but then on the other hand i'd get those phone calls where he would was just apologizing um so mm. maybe that's you know maybe that's his own guilt that he can't deal with and then for my mom my 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 korean mom is the one who she helps me a lot with like logistical things that are hard to do when you're not fluent in korean like you know she's oh, nice. she's helped me find apartments or move or you know things like that, yeah. um, and I'm always apo- I'm always like apologizing to her. Like I'm sorry that you have to come all the way out here and go with me to this random office to get a random certificate that I need for whatever. Wow. Um, and she and your Korean's really good. Is this before well, your Korean got really good, or uh, you know my Korean's not good enough for government? <laughs> yeah, whatever. Yeah, uh, um, and I remember there was just one time where she she mentioned something like, no, no, like I'm the one who's sorry that you have to do this.
0: Can I ask you if you still struggle with not being able to meet um your siblings half siblings yeah. and and other relatives like how you deal with that internally
1: yeah I would I mean I would definitely definitely like to meet my half siblings. I think I've kind of accepted it probably won't happen, and I guess you know, so yeah, I'm like the family secret right on both sides um, but just with the whole situation like i understand that's their choice like they it's not up to me to tell them to reveal this quite shocking thing to their entire families um like i can i can respect that um yeah well i would obviously like to meet them i can accept that they aren't ready for it and maybe will never be ready for it yeah yeah
0: okay and one last question on search and reunion um so i was wondering was your korean already at a pretty good level when you reunited and do you think that like now that your language competence i would assume it enables a better relationship with your birth parents
1: yeah so when i reunited i was i guess in what i like to call intermediate purgatory (laughs) i was at like a quote-unquote intermediate level of korean for a really long time um so that was kind of where i was then um so like you know passable enough to have a basic conversation not great for anything of much depth or substance right. <laughs> um you know but it was good enough to you know have dinner with them or whatever um and i mean and that's a lot better than
0: a lot of probably most adoptees
1: yeah i guess, i mean so like when i when i first went to go meet my korean mom um I still asked for, like, a translator um, yeah. to to go along. And I guess it was sort of unfortunate because at, at the agency, the social worker just did the translation herself. Um, and my Korean was, my, at least my comprehension, was good enough to understand that there were things she was cutting out when, like, my... My Korean mom or my aunt would say something, and the social worker would translate it, and I'd be like, mm, "I don't think that's what they said, you know," or "That's that's missing some of what they said." Mm. Um, even if my Korean wasn't good enough to like respond back to that stuff, I could I could hear better than I could speak. Um, right. And then, but I, I mean, so for my for my Korean dad, he actually speaks English because he lived in the states for like three oh, years, cool. maybe. Mm. Um, in his family, like his his wife and kids live in the states. Um, but, but we still speak in Korean. Uh, he's obviously more comfortable. Oh, in he works here, and his wife and kids live in the states. Yes.
0: Oh, what do they call those,
1: it? like goose fathers? Yeah, or, something. or like seagull <laughs> or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but that's just nice in that if there is some word I don't know, I can yeah. say it in English, and he'll usually get it. So, um, it's a nice fallback, but. Um, but yeah, I mean, of course, like, having language ability helps. You don't need to have a translator all the time when you meet them or, um, or if, you know, I, I've met adoptees who just kind of struggle through it. Like, you know, they just, even though, even if they can't speak any Korean, they just kind of go with it. Yeah. Um. And I really admire, you know, I admire our ability to handle that. Like, you know, like meeting, hanging out with your birth parents is is enough as it is, right? But having that added language barrier and having to communicate through that is really tough. So, yeah.
0: To end this episode, we're going to take um, quite a leap. No, so, like, you know, graceful segue. But... The best kind of leap.
1: <laughs> I'm so, so excited. you're
0: basically <laughs> my Korean skincare guru. Yeah. So, I'd like to hear about, like, when you got into Korean skincare for the first time.
1: And what it's done for your skin. Yeah. Um, so, my skin... I had a weird thing where when I was in high school, I actually had like perfect skin. I never, I didn't have much acne or anything as opposed to like, yeah, like my brother, for example, had really horrible acne when he was in high school. But once I got to college, then um, my skin started really acting up a lot of redness and like breakouts and I mean, nothing super, super severe, but um, it definitely wasn't great. So when I first came to Korea, um, I don't, I didn't get into skincare right away just because I think it's easy to, if you first come to Korea and you don't know anything about, like the the culture of skincare and stuff, it's easy to just see kind of the plastic aspect of it, like, you know, lots of makeup and plastic surgery to look a certain way or whatever. But once I started venturing more into like the skincare, I had friends who were really into Korean skincare, like probably even before they lived there. Um, I started just like reading blogs and looking for like what were popular products and things yeah. Um,
0: so yeah oh, do you have
1: blog recommendations too oh um, so my favorite my favorite uh, like Asian beauties blog of all time is 50 shades of snail <laughs> um, hi if you're listening I love your stuff like never change um, <laughs> she writes really really amazing like in-depth reviews she looks at all the ingredients of a product um, she's also really good about you know evaluating whether like a luxury product is actually worth it or not um none of her recommendations have ever sued me wrong like maybe we have a similar skin type or something i don't know but um her stuff is gold and she's just hilarious um and really funny and smart um so my favorite of all time um other blogs i first learned about some of my favorite products from um her name's cheryl renata i think um, her blog used to be called the Wanderlust Project. I'm actually not sure mm-hmm. if she does it anymore because she's she's joined other podcasts and blogs and things. Oh, Okay. Wow. Um, there are
0: like K beauty podcasts.
1: Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Oh, I didn't even <laughs> know that. <laughs> um. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. I haven't listened to the podcast, but I just follow these people on like Instagram or whatever to see what they're posting about. Um. So yeah. She. I got a lot of recommendations from her. Her stuff is really good. So. Um.
0: <laughs> do you think like Korean skincare products are actually, like, just categorically better than western ones or do you think they're just like better value
1: or they just use more like Mm. weird ingredients (laughs) that's a good question i think i think a lot of them are better value like if you compare like a quote-unquote drugstore product from say the states to what would be in the same price range here you could probably get something much better here yeah i don't know i don't know enough about like the nitty-gritty of the beauty industry to know if like Korea has different regulations on the types of ingredients they can use or like if it's just better because the competition here is so much more fierce and they have to be innovative Um, all the time or they have to you know their marketing game has to be on point all the time I don't you know I'm not sure but I just love it (laughs) 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 I don't know I don't really have anything (laughs) eloquent to say about that but (laughs) and it's definitely like you feel like it's helped your skin yeah totally I mean I guess I guess maybe that's not totally fair in that I didn't give a lot of, like, Western beauty a fair shot. Um, so, like, when I was in college, Clinique was, like, the big thing. Or at least, like, you know, my mm. mom was really into Clinique. And so that was, you know, what a lot of girls my age saw as, like, ooh, trying grown-up skincare, was, like, getting Clinique products from the the counter in the mall or whatever. Um, but, yeah, because, like, you know, I had, I had some acne and, like, redness issues. And I was trying their, like, I tried various products from them. And, I mean, I liked them but it didn't really help per se um, yeah
0: i also feel like a lot of korean products are like quite good for my sensitive skin
1: yeah yes totally um i think you know there's just a lot more you know there's products with no alcohol if you're sensitive to alcohol and because there's alcohol in a lot of things um or maybe they're just more mindful in terms of the ingredients i don't know hmm. Or maybe they like suit our skin
0: because we're Korean. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I mean that's possible too. No, I think they're generally good though. But like, yeah, I'm, I mean
1: I think yeah, I think it's it's fair to say that like K-beauty is the standard um that to which <laughs> to which people should achieve. Um And so
0: I understand that your current AM and PM skincare routines um
1: <laughs> they're quite long. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, I guess for me, I really feel like my skin is getting much drier as I get older. <laughs> um, so my strategy lately has been more about layering a lot of really light products instead of like slapping on a few heavier ones. Um, and I feel like that's working for me lately. So, But that means I have a lot of steps so I don't even know if I want to count them necessarily but um,
0: um, I think rather than talking about your um, holy grail products now what we'll do I'll just get you to like email them to me and then we can like um, link them in our episode notes on the website yes Yes. okay sounds good okay well we should we should wrap up there thanks so much for chatting
1: yeah thanks so much for having me so fun Um, and yeah. <laughs> I don't know how to
0: yeah. wrap up this episode. But, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for doing this. Yeah.
1: yeah of yeah. course. Thank you.
0: Bye. Bye. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at AdoptedFeelsPodcast or on Twitter at AdoptedFeels. If you like what you hear, please rate us on iTunes and/or support us through our Patreon.